So we began this series over two years ago. And when we did it, we chose the series title, Tracing the Shadow of the King. And we did that on purpose. From the outset, from page one, from Baron Hannah's song, we've claimed that this story was about, this story about David wasn't really about David. The purpose of this story is greater and broader and more profound than merely a biography of an ancient king. It's more significant than merely a historical record of a long-collapsed dynasty. We've suggested every chapter and verse that the author of this history means for you to see shadows behind the life and words and work of David and to trace those shadows to the ancient shepherd king of Israel. I've told you guys in a number of ways that the author of Samuel meant for you to read this book in this way. It isn't an accident of history and inspiration that these words just happen to also teach us about the true king of Israel. The human author and the divine author both intend for you to trace the shadow. The shadows of the coming king are woven into this narrative, every chapter and verse. And the only right way to read it is to see Jesus behind these scenes. I mention it often, and I get it, you're probably tired of hearing it. But I realized this week that I haven't mentioned the most significant piece of evidence in favor of this conclusion. It's easy enough to say that an author means for his words to be read a certain way, but if ever I intend for you to be convinced of it, I should offer every bit of evidence that this is so. And I fear I've failed you in this regard because I haven't yet mentioned what I think is the most compelling reason to read these words as pointing beyond David. So here it is. David, by the time the people of Israel are reading these words, is dead. Indeed, there's very real and striking evidence that David is dead and Solomon is dead and many of his successors are dead by the time this book was widely read among the people of Israel. We've read many stories about David that might have led you to believe that he was the promised king of Israel, that he was the seed of hope planted in the ancient law. The answer to the many prayers of the faithful sons and daughters of Israel. You might have read these stories and believed that all of the building tension among the people of Israel was now resolved in the person of David, the shepherd king of Israel. But you cannot read it that way because David is dead. It's so basic. Yet the fact of David's death, the fact of Solomon's death is profound. Because if this book has anything to say of the fate of the people of God, if it intends to teach the faithful sons and daughters of Israel of a final, permanent hope of total and final deliverance, then it must be pointing beyond the life of David to another, merely because David is buried six feet under by the time they're reading it. 
so when you read the prophetic promises of Hannah's song, and when you read the prophecies of Samuel, and when you read the faithful exclamations of Jonathan, you have two choices to make. Either these words are an artifact of a dead dynasty and therefore have no meaning for you and I. Or these words are directing your hope towards a greater king, a son of David whose kingdom will never end. I choose the latter, and I hope you do too. Now the reason I mention all of this is because we happen to have just read and reflected on the single most explicit promise of this coming son of David in the whole book. The chapter just prior to the ones we're about to read made explicit all that had been implied from page one of Samuel. That is, that David wasn't allowed or even able to be the great savior of Israel. Instead, God promised a better king. David's son was coming and he would make a place for God's people and they would rest under his rule forever and ever. Never has the book made such explicit promises about a one who will come. All the whispers of the book are transformed into shouts at that moment. David's frail dynasty is not the hope of Israel. A forever king is coming. Look out for him. Watch for him. His kingdom is your only true hope. That's where we left off. Now, walk a few miles in the shoes of the people of Israel who are reading this book knowing that David's dynasty is crumbling, knowing that their enemies loom on the horizon, knowing that exile or death is inevitable. Place yourself in their position. What would you be thinking now that you've read these promises? You have recently lost hope In the dynasty of David, you face dreadful enemies and a terrifying fate. Yet you've just read these promises, promises of rescue and rest and a coming son of David. If you're that guy and you've just turned the page after reading all of your hopes are set in a coming son of David who promises rest. What are you thinking just then? Tell me what he's like. What is the son of David like? Tell me about him so that I can scan the horizon and know when my hope has arrived. Tell me more about him because this hope is all I have left. Tell me about the coming son of David so that I'll know when the promised rest is here. And that, I think, is why the next two chapters exist. For the broken and lost and hurting and exiled people of Israel to know who to look out for and to know what he's like. For those who had real hope set in the frail dynasty of David, when that hope is crushed and they turn to the book to read that a better son is coming, I think these chapters exist to teach them what to look out for. So let's read these words together with the same longing and anticipation as the exiled people of Israel. Look, their hope and our hope are the same. We, together with them, look toward a better kingdom and a better king. 
And we can get through the dark days of our exile by remembering what he's like. So turn with me to 2 Samuel 8. We're going to take it in parts. Let's start in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methigama out of the hands of the Philistines. After he defeated Moab, and he measured them, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured them to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Okay, so right off the bat, we're given a bit of information that ought to bother you a little bit, because this sort of thing isn't normal. The first verse tells us that David has done what no other leader of Israel has ever done. We're told that he subdues the Philistines, Israel's most aggressive enemy. And that's noteworthy, but what follows should give you pause. We're told that David defeated the Moabite army. And we didn't really need any more information than that. That would have been sufficient if the author were attempting to communicate about Moab what he just communicated about the Philistines. But the text goes further. We're told that David made the Moabite soldiers who survived the conflict lie down on the ground. And he took a measuring line of some length and laid it on the ground before them. The soldiers who happened to be laying within the boundaries of the first two of every three links he laid down were executed. The soldiers who happened to be laying within the boundaries of the third of every three links were spared. And that seems cruel to most, and it seems uncharacteristic to nearly everyone. Now, it's worth noting that this sort of practice was actually seen as compassionate in the ancient world. It wasn't uncommon for kings to wholesale slaughter all survivors. Julius Caesar did it all the time. But this sort of thing is unusual for Israel, and especially for David, So what on earth is going on here? This passage has bothered readers for thousands of years. Jewish readers of this passage recognized that this action felt a lot more like the cruelty of pagan kings than the righteous justice of King David. In fact, from the outset, Jewish historians have attempted to explain David's actions and his malice by referring to by referencing an episode of David's history that we don't have in our Bible. So if you remember, when David was on the run, he was chased outside of the boundaries of Israel, right? And he lived himself in the territory of the Philistines. But what did he do with his mom and dad? Do you remember? He left them with the Moabite king. Now, Jewish historians have suggested that the king of the Moabites killed David's parents instead of protecting them. And that's why they say David is exceptionally violent toward Moab. There's really no way of knowing whether the king of Moab was so treacherous. It wasn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And it's not in Samuel. And that's why I think that this sort of explanation doesn't make sense of David's actions. Because if we needed to know that to make sense of what David does, the author would have told us about it. No, I think the answer to our questions is more profound than that one. 
I'm going to read you for a moment from Numbers 24 in the ancient law of the people of Israel. And we don't have time to get into context here, but just know that a pagan king hired a prophet to curse God's people. But when that prophet attempted to speak maliciously against God's people, God made him bless them instead. And the prophecies of Balaam became a beacon of hope for the people of Israel. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. I see him now, but I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And what will this great king do? He shall crush the forehead. Of Moab. He will crush the forehead of Moab. That's a promise. To a people abused by the oppression of the Moabites, to a people oppressed by the treachery of the Moabites, to a people tempted by the idolatry of the Moabites, that's a promise that someday God will send a king and he will crush them. And that's why David's doing what he's doing. That's why David is purposefully eliminating any potential that Moab would rise again to compromise God's people. What is David doing by executing two-thirds of Moab's armies? He's crushing the forehead of Moab. And he's fulfilling the ancient promises of God. When David stretches his mighty arm against Moab, he's doing what God has promised would be done since the people of Israel were pacing towards the promised land, because the king of Israel fulfills the promises of God. That's what the coming son of David is like. That's what the promised king will do. The true king of Israel fulfills the promises of God. Amen? Let's keep reading. Read with me from verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zoab, David struck down 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram, Damascus, And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hedadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Beratai, cities of Hedadezer, David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hedadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he has fought against Hedadezer and defeated him. For Hedadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hedadezer, the son of Roab, king of Zobah. So the first thing I want you to notice here is that David's military victories and the related alliances were extraordinarily profitable. Horses aren't cheap. Chariots aren't cheap. Shields made of gold are literally made of gold. David leads his armies to protect God's people, and he returns with heaps and heaps of gold and silver and bronze, riches beyond imagining at David's fingertips. So what does David do with all of it? In yet another odd moment, we're told that David slaughters the horses he's taken. He keeps only enough to supplement his forces with a mere 100 chariots. Why would he do something like that? And when he walks away from these battlefields with enough money to rest comfortably and to establish his dynasty for generations, what does he do? He gives it to God. Why? I want to read you something from Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. David stepped away from breathtaking military potential. David stepped away from unimaginable riches. Why? Because the law required it. The king isn't allowed to, require, to acquire many horses for himself, so David didn't. The king isn't allowed to acquire excessive silver and gold, so David didn't. In a word, David kept God's law. And that's what the coming son of David will do. And that's what the promised king will do. The promised son fulfills God's promises and the promised son keeps God's law. Time is short and we've got lots of ground to cover, so let's keep moving. Read with me from verse 8. I'm sorry, 13. Verse 13. And David made a name for himself 
when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. David's military might had become legendary among ancient Middle Eastern peoples. His victories were whispered among Israel's enemies and shouted among Israel's people. And as he secured a place for God's people, David left garrisons outside of the boundaries of the land to warn the future enemies of Israel. There will be no mercy shown to those who stretch their hand against God's people. His might and power were glorious. His enemies shuddered in fear because of his glorious might. And then, when he took off his armor and put on his crown, when he sat upon his throne to reign over the people, to speak wisdom over them, to judge them, and to provide for them, he is glorious. His reign is marked by justice and equity. He is glorious at home and glorious abroad. That's what the coming Son of David is like. The promised Redeemer of Israel is glorious. He is just and merciful and mighty. So let's stop for a moment and reflect. On the heels of this promise, David casts a distinct shadow of a better king. And man, what a shadow! Like David, the son of David will fulfill God's promises. Like David, the son of David will keep God's law. And like David, the son of David will reign in justice, equity, and might. He will be glorious. And we could have stopped there, right? Don't you think that's enough? The faithful sons and daughters of Israel who are reading this book and longing for a vision of the promised king, they're going to trace the shadow and they'll see covenant faithfulness and they'll see righteousness and they'll see justice and equity and might. When they trace the shadow, they'll see glory. And we could have stopped there and it would have been just fine. But the author doesn't stop there. In fact, each of these characteristics took more or less than a paragraph to embody. The author quickly, in rapid succession, paints a picture of the coming Messiah. Bam, 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 bam. It's almost as if he's in a hurry to get somewhere. And then we turn to chapter 9. And all of a sudden, the pace slows to a crawl. And all of a sudden, the author dwells on one final characteristic. He forces you to consider one final aspect of the Messiah's character. This isn't bam, 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 bam. This is wait, watch, reflect. It's almost as if the author has rushed to get you right here. It's almost as if the story slows because the author wants you to swim in this shadow. So let's do it. Read with me, chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lobadel. Labadar, I think. Ladabar. <laughs> then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Labadar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all the Lord, my Lord the king commands his servants, so, I will, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Okay, I want you to stop for a moment and reflect on what's happening. The king of Israel has finished his work. He has fulfilled God's promises in ways. He has kept God's law in ways. And he has protected God's people. And now he reigns in justice and equity and might. That's what we just read. All that is finished. We now see David at rest. He is seated on the throne and his work is accomplished. Now. What does the king of Israel do after he defeats his enemies, after his borders are secure and his people are safe? What does the king of Israel do when his kingdom is established? What does the king of Israel do after he sits down on his throne? He seeks the lost and broken, and he invites them to sit at his table forever. Listen to his words. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? He said, Saul. Saul, the pretender king. Saul, who corrupted the faith of the people of God. Saul, who spent himself raging against the true king of Israel. Saul's house pursued David in the wilderness. Saul's house tore his family apart. Saul's house raged against his kingdom. Saul's house divided Israel. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? What a king. 
Saul's house was in ruins. Saul's descendants were crushed or scattered. They had no hope anymore. Their kingdom was fallen and their lives were forfeit. Yet this king seeks and saves the lost. The last in Saul's line was Mephibosheth, a cripple. And when the house of Saul fell, he had fled from his tribal boundaries and he had crossed over the Jordan into the wilderness. He has no property, no home, no inheritance. He is lost and broken and hopeless. And with a word, David reverses his fate. With the word, David gives him all the land and property of the fallen house of Saul. With the word, David invites him to dine at the king's table always. With the word, the lost and broken son of a pretender king is restored. That's the sort of king we are waiting for. The author of Saul could have stopped at chapter 8. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. Because it isn't enough to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of David, forever King of Israel, is faithful. It isn't enough to know He's righteous and just and mighty. It isn't enough to know that He's glorious. No. If you want to know who He is and what He's like, you must know Jesus Christ as Redeemer. The king of Israel seeks and saves the lost and the broken. The hopeless find hope in him. Those whose stock was invested in a fallen kingdom. Whose ruin was sealed when the pretender king was defeated. These are the ones that the king of Israel invites to his table. Walk a mile in the shoes of ancient Israel. Exiled and lost, broken and hopeless because they spent their lives worshiping false gods, seeking peace in the wrong kingdoms. Put yourself in the position of the sons and daughters of the broken covenant and feel their swelling hope because of these words. Yes, Israel, you've made an enemy of the God who rescued you from slavery. Yes, you've broken the covenant and you've worshipped the gods of the nations. Yes, you're a slave to the nations whom you've served. But there's a king coming. And he is faithful in your stead. And he is righteous in your stead. And he will establish a kingdom of peace and reign in justice and equity and might. And this king invites the lost and broken to sit at his table. Stunning hope. Staggering grace. Unimaginable mercy. When God sends Jesus Christ to rescue His people, it is in the face of their wicked rebellion And the faithful sons of Israel who perceive this shadow and look forward to this king pay homage to the God who saves and whisper the words of Mephibosheth. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Surely, surely by now you see where I'm going. 
you have an advantage here. You know his name. You have heard of the words and works of Jesus Christ, the King of Israel. You know him for who he is. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. He fulfills them. In our stead, he was righteous. He kept the law. He traded our sins for his righteousness so that we might stand before a holy God blameless. And Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, will reign in justice and equity and might. You cannot imagine his glory. But it isn't enough to know those things. An invitation has been sent. Servants have been sent to invite you to dine at his table forever and ever, every day. Don't sit there and think, I have accepted that invitation, so I'm fine. When Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock, that was a letter to a church. You, today, are invited to sit at his table and dine with him every day. You see Mephibosheth, the cripple, lost and broken son of Saul. You are that man. I am that man. We were, each of us, broken and lost and without hope. You were born into sin, a servant of the pretender king. Your life was spent on the wrong kingdom. Your time was wasted on the wrong kingdom. Your hope was set in the wrong kingdom, but that kingdom is crumbling. You were sworn enemy of the king of Israel, but it is that king who invites you to sit at his table. Let's do it. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.